Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be together. My name's Graham. If you don't know me, um, I'm the minister here. Uh, we're going to have a question and answer time at the end. Don't forget to... If you, if, I've got to find my outline, my outline summary here. Grab the outline in front of you. That'll be helpful to, to go through and to, to follow where, where we're up to, I should say. And don't forget the comment cards as well. Can I just share something? We had our most controversial week last week in church that I've ever been involved with. Let me explain to you why. We had the most amount of comment cards I've ever had, ever. These are, these are no, no, John, there were four, double that. How about that, four? Four comment cards and all of them were involved one, one thing. Uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I really had to share it with you. Four comment cards, all of them praised the choice of song that we did last week. <laughs> Wonderful. One choice of song, I should say. But apparently we did a bit fast. You know? Anyway, we did a bit fast, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, there was such discussion. And, and in fact, what I can picture is just an over morning tea. I can picture four people getting together going, we need to put a comment card in, you know, hatching a plan. But thank you for putting your cards in, because that was really excited. I opened it up, and uh, wow, four comment cards. Not one of them was actually an RSVP to the events that I've been trying to spruik in the last... <laughs> not one, but that's okay. I'm not bitter, twisted, that's fine. All right, let's get on with things. Um, church matters, does. Church matters. That's been the theme of 1 Corinthians so far, and I do hope that you've enjoyed Proverbs. I hope that you've grown in wisdom over these last five weeks as we uh, got our teeth stuck into to Proverbs. But we're going to head back now into 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, wisdom, um, wisdom from God. But the way that wisdom is defined in 1 Corinthians, we remember from chapter 1, is that wisdom is Christ, uh, Christ the power and wisdom of God. Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. Now, it's this gospel that shapes all that we do as followers of the Lord Jesus, especially as God's church. Remember God's church, back to chapter 1 again, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's what we do when we gather together. We're, we're God's church together. That's us here. And that's Corinth in the first century. So what we do together matters. How we do what we do matters. It needs to be shaped by the gospel. It needs to be shaped by Christ crucified, the cross of Jesus Christ. So over the next six weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to cover every, uh, every chapter of these last six chapters, um, but we, in some ways, we'll, we'll talk about them as, you, as you'll find out. We're going, to, we're going to ask the question, how does church work? What's God's good order for church? There'll be some controversial passages as well. So if you miss a week, you're going to miss controversy. That's so boring to do that. Everyone loves a bit of controversy, especially next week. Oh, my goodness. Okay, but that's all right. That'll be fun to get, get to that. Um, why don't I pray and, uh, and then we'll get stuck into chapter 10 so let me pray Father we thank you for uh, your word uh, we thank you Lord that sometimes it is, it is challenging it's not always easy but Lord we know that you're a God who speaks to us and um, may we have hearts that are open to understand your word and as Jesus said put your words into practice in our lives thank you Lord in Jesus name Amen so have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You remember this, this lady? 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Jane Seville, her name is. Uh, she is an Olympic uh, race walker. 
Now, I'd love to demonstrate what a race walker does, um, but I've got too much pride. Uh, and also, I did my, did hurt my leg yesterday. I was doing beach sprints. Yes, stupid idiot, I shouldn't have done that. But I was having fun. I like, I was saying to Gary before, I like running fast. It's good. So I'm doing a bit of exercise on the beach, and of course, I'm not 21 anymore, and I hurt my leg. Anyway. But she's an Olympic race walker. So in the 2000 Olympics, Jane Seville was disqualified for, wait for it, an illegal gait. Does that mean she walked like this? I don't know. That's the, that, maybe she did that. I don't know. What, I don't know what a legal gait is in race walking. Maybe someone can demonstrate later on. But she had a clear lead. Uh, she was entering the Olympic Stadium. So picture Homebush. Back then, 110,000 people. She had one lap of the track to go, really just heading into the, the, the stadium itself. And out from the shadows, uh, this man, official, jumped out. You can see him there. And you can just see the red card. And he showed her the red card of disqualification, this dreaded red card. She'd been warned already, um, but she'd used up all her uh, warnings. And the gold, well, that was in her grasp was now, uh, well, the Chinese walker coming second. Uh, she got it. It's tragic. The, the, uh, the commentators at the time, you can watch the YouTube clip, they all went, oh, no! Can't really do it properly. No, it's tragedy. And she cried and it was awful, really. Uh, you really fell for it. Athletes know about disqualifications, though. They do. They know about the rules. And she knew that she had already used up her warnings and she knew that, that she was uh, walking a fine line. You remember Ian Thorpe? In a, um, uh, he, was, he false started at an Olympic trial. It's quite funny, really. Instead of false starting with all grace and I'm going to just false start and dive right in. No, no, Ian thought, sort of just fell into the water. It was really lame. So this, hmm. that was it. And that was the end of his Olympic trial that year. He had to race a different race and it wasn't too good. Um, athletes know about disqualifications. They, they do. They, they know that you have to take precautions. So the, the truth is that Ian Thorpe, uh, all the swimmers, they practice starts. They practice so this doesn't happen. They practice so they don't get disqualified. This is the analogy that Paul picks up at the end of chapter 9 that we, that we find ourselves in uh, when we get to chapter 10. Paul says, for I, for I, and it's the reason for the for, this analogy is the reason for the first word of chapter 10. He says, for I don't want you to be like the Israelites in the wilderness. I don't want, I want you to make it to the end. I don't want you to be disqualified. I want you to make it to the end like me, so follow my example. That's where he picks up in 11, chapter 11, verse 1. This, this whole um, argument finishes there. So let's pick it up from verse 24, and you'll see what I mean. Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. It, Paul says, this is what I want you to know. I don't want you to be ignorant, so I want you to know this. I want you to know the example of Israel's history. So, that's the first point in the outline there. 
Israel had experienced God's salvation. They were blessed. So in verses 1 to 4, Paul gives this short summary of Israel's exodus from Egypt and their salvation or redemption, their freedom from slavery. I just wonder, I wonder if Paul was, was reading Psalm 95 as he wrote this letter. Uh, maybe he was, I don't know. Together, God's people were, well, they all passed through the sea. We see that, it's the Red Sea. You remember the story from Exodus? Uh, Together, God's people were baptised into Moses. You can see that, those words there. Paul picks up on this water analogy of baptism. That is, they're made new, they're redeemed, they're washed clean, you could say, by this act of grace. And that's a sign that they were God's people, saved by God. And God led them, remember, by a cloud uh, during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. He was with them day and night. He spoke to them by his prophet Moses even. They had this salvation experience. They were blessed. God provided for them, eating and drinking. Remember the, the manna uh, the manna and the, the water. And Paul says too, they all drank from the same spiritual rock in God's provision. And look who that rock was. That rock was Jesus. Jesus is the source of all blessing, even back then, as he is today. But then Paul's mood changes. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he reminds the church in Corinth of the greatest of all tragedies of biblical history, really. I guess we could say that. What happened next in that story with Israel? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, Paul's a bit of an understatement here, isn't it? Uh, only two, only two of them actually made it through to the promised land, uh, Caleb and Joshua. Uh, so he, he, was, he was not pleased with almost all of them, really. The rest died as a result of their rebellion. So here's what Paul's saying, and we need to hear this very carefully, because this is a word to us just as it's a word to the church in Corinth. Paul says, if it can happen to them who experience such a blessing, if it can happen to them, well, it can happen to us as well. Hear that? If it can happen to them, it can happen to you. Look at verse 6. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Well, Paul now gives four, four ways... Uh, I can see them there up on the screen. Uh, for, for sins, for ways that they were, I think, uh, worshipping other gods. But we'll get to that in a minute. More about idolatry. But for sins, which demonstrate these Israelites' hearts. And no doubt Paul had in mind the struggles of the Corinthians. And some of these we've already picked up, if you remember from our, our study in earlier chapters of Corinthians. But verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord. And verse 6, and do not grumble or complain. Now, if you look in your outline there, I've included some references, uh, Old Testament references where I think Paul is referring back to, and you can look at them up at your own time. Really, Paul says to the church at Corinth, and God says to us today, look at the example of Israel. Don't go down that path. And the great tragedy, of course, is that if we don't heed the warning, well will be disqualified. 
We won't receive the crown if our hearts are like the hearts of the Israelites. So verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as, as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. What does he mean by that? Well, you see, we have Jesus. We know Jesus. We're like the church of Corinth. Uh, the fulfilment of the ages has come. Jesus has come. And see, back then, that was just a sh- that blessing that the Israelites experienced, that's just a shadow of the things that we have. In fact, that, those things point to the, the, the great redemption and the, and the great salvation, using big Christian words, the, the forgiveness we have in Jesus. That's what they point to. So, so God says, be careful that you don't reject that blessing. Be careful that you don't reject the greatest of all blessings. You don't reject Jesus for the things of this world. That's not a bad definition of idolatry, isn't it? Rejecting Jesus for the things of this world. In fact, um, some commentators reckon that those four sins that we see up on the screen there, verses 7 to 10, those four sins are all to do with idolatry. I think you probably could make a pretty good argument for that, couldn't you? Uh, Worshipping the created things are over and above the creator. Now, what is idolatry? What is it then? Well, I think it's rivalry. That's what idolatry is. It's spiritual rivalry, where we place the created things up against Jesus and Jesus comes off second best. That's not what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus said. Following Jesus means an undivided loyalty. Undivided loyalty. And friends, the warning here is that none of us are safe from the temptation of idolatry. None of us are safe. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, teaching a loved one to drive a car is a special experience. So I'm teaching where's to drive at the moment, Michelle as well. Here's our, here's, here's our, our recent drive that we had. It didn't work out so well. <laughs> Um, you know, but that's all right. Uh, this one, I guess everyone did get out safe in the end. But it is a special experience. Um, I guess that's one way to describe it. Another, another way to describe teaching a loved one to drive a car is that it's, it's character building. Yes. It's an opportunity for godliness, patience and prayer. I pity the poor parents who had twins. Sorry, Dennis, Andrea. <laughs> um, but, you know, it makes a lot of sense that the first thing you learn when you, as you drive a car, um, it's in the book that they do. That, in that, the book that they learn, correct me if I'm wrong here, you know, people who have driven and taught recently, but uh, in that little booklet of the you to learn to do the test to get your errors, you're not learning things like when to change gear and how to turn a steering wheel and how to do... You're learning about safety. The whole thing's about safety. And so some of the first things you learn when you drive a car is, well, you've got to wear your seatbelt. And secondly, this is what I said to Wes when he started, Wes, where's the brake? Know that. It's really important. (laughs) Don't be afraid to use it. The brake's good. Um, You take, you see, in in driving, we we take precautions to make sure we're safe. And that will make our way home. We'll get home in one piece. It's the same when it comes to following Jesus and avoiding temptation. Now, it seems that the Corinthians, like the Israelites, had ventured down that path of idolatry. They dallied in it, you know, Uh, and we'll see how in a moment. But it also seemed that they were very sure of themselves, weren't they? 
I guess that's a bit of a form of arrogance before God, that they had this self-confidence. Paul reminds them that the temptations you're experiencing are the same for all of us. See that in verse 12. Uh, There's no exemption clause for anyone. All of us can be tempted by idolatry. So be careful you don't fall, he says. Take precautions so you're safe. Listen to the warning so you're not disqualified. So you'll make it to the end. But remember, some lovely encouragement here, isn't there, in verse 13. God is faithful. And God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's very true, isn't it? When we're tempted, God always provides a way out. So there are no exceptions. We will all face the temptation of idolatry. And so what does Paul say? He says, we'll flee from it. Flee from it. This point three in our outline. And for the Christians in first century Corinth, like us today, this meant taking a stand against cultural practices. That's what it meant. It meant more than abstaining. Paul says, flee from it. Don't go anywhere near it. Run away. And as the word flee indicates, that's going to be hard sometimes. It's not always easy to flee from the temptation of idolatry. Uh, It'll take a bit of discipline sometimes. Uh, Commitment. uh, It'll take the help of Christian friends. That's why church is so important. Small groups are so important. It'll be hard. Uh, It'll be hard to say no to your workmates when temptation is to go along with them and to be dishonest. It's going to be hard to do that. It's, it's hard to flee the idolatry of family when you're invited to another get-together on a Sunday morning or in small group time. It's hard to say no to family like that. No, no, church is more important. We can meet at a different time. It, it won't be easy to flee when everyone has one and you don't. Everyone's got that and I don't. Uh, that, that won't be easy to say no like that. Now, common practice in those days was to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols in the pagan temples. That was common practice. So, and Paul addresses this earlier in chapter 8. You can read back there as well if you want to. So, this is what a good night looked like in first century Corinth. All right? For us, a good night might be going to the bolo. All right? No, don't, oh, okay, well, stop there. I'll get in trouble. Um, that's, uh, but a good night in the first century Corinth, well, that looked a bit different. So you get your friends together. It might, be a, it might be a holiday, like a traditional holiday. You've got the whole day off. It's like the Queen's birthday long weekend or something like that. Um, you get a holiday day off, get your friends together. You go to the temple and attached to the temple would be probably a little restaurant. And you know that in that temple, the food that's served up in the restaurant is food that had been sacrificed to the idols, to the gods. Pretty common practice. Uh, the food was usually pretty good. You know, you don't, you know, you don't give them the off cuts. No way, you give the idols the best meat. Uh, And you'd pay for it, and that's your night out. Pretty good. The night would finish, though, you'd have a bit of dessert, and uh, the night would finish. Usually, common practice in Corinth was to have some sort of sexual activity with the the temple prostitutes. That's pretty common occurrence in Corinth of that day. Paul says, as we get on to uh, verses 14 to 22, Paul says, you can't participate or fellowship in that 
and then meet together and have a Christian meal together when you do church together. In fact, you know the word for participate, what we read here in our Bibles, and the word for fellowship, and the word for church in the Greek is the same word. Same word, participate, fellowship and church. In other words, you can't do church with idols and then go along and do church or participate and do church together when you eat together, when you have a meal together. You can't do that. See, one meal, one meal participates in the worship of idols, the table of demons. Strong language, isn't it? He mentions that later on. The other participates in the worship of Jesus. One meal points to idols. One meal points people to Jesus, to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a major conflict, Paul says. You can't have both. Jesus demands undivided loyalty. Here is spiritual rivalry. There it is. That's what idolatry means, spiritual rivalry. And God says we must flee from that. So Paul says there's something spiritual at work when you eat and drink in association with an idol. Likewise, there's something spiritual at work when you eat and drink in association with Christ. Their Christian meals, which I, which I think are referred to in verses 22 to, to, well, really 22 to 23. Sorry, 14 to 23. 22. Yeah, I'll get it right. 14 to 22. There you go. The, these Christian meals that are referred to there, that they participate in, that they church in, that they fellowship in, they point to Jesus. The cup points to Jesus. The bread points to Jesus. They symbolise, as they eat and drink together, the unity they share in Jesus. These are special meals. Whenever they gather together as Christians, they're special meals because what, they, what they're doing is symbolising the unity they share in Jesus, his body, his blood. They're significant gatherings. And so in verse 21, you can't, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons too. You can't do that. Jesus demands undivided loyalty, not spiritual rivalry. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Okay, now, now to be honest, I don't know, it seems a little far off, don't you think? Well, it's not exactly the world we live in today, where we go off to the temples and we you know, have to decide whether we should eat the, the meat sacrificed to idols. I don't know of that sort of thing in Robertson, maybe you do. Um, Perhaps we can think of some similar examples. Let me, think of some, let me give, you some, give you some examples of where we are tempted or conflicted with a rival spirituality. Buckle, you know, get comfortable. This, is, this could be ugly for some of you. Um, what about yoga? What do we make of yoga? So, now yoga cops a bit of flack in Christian circles, doesn't it? It gets a bit of criticism. Uh, it's very popular. It's very good for you. Um, I, I, I couldn't do yoga. Uh, if you sat me cross-legged on the floor, that's where I'd die. Um, I'm not getting up again. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. Trying. Really am. Uh, I'm, I'm, but I, I don't mind yoga at all. However, if the session starts with a time of meditation to a god or some mystical experience or uh, some Buddhist practice, if it starts like that, and some yoga does, it's very rare these days, to be totally honest, um, but some of it does, if it does start like that, or in the middle, wherever it is, then it seems to me we ought to not take part in it. You see, there's a rival spirituality. 
And participation, that's the key word, remember, participation in that activity could easily be interpreted as acceptance. Uh, let me give you another example. These are just the things you can talk about at morning tea. Uh, what about Halloween? There's something worth thinking about, isn't it? Now, these days, Halloween is, is more often than not, I think, kids dressing up and then wandering the streets asking for lollies. Uh, they dress up as Bob the Builder, fairies and you know, superheroes most of the time. Uh, they never seem to come to our door, unfortunately. I don't know. Maybe, who knows why, why that is. I always, if they say trick or treat, I want them to do a trick and they look at me blankly. Come on, that's what it's about. Do something for me. They don't do it, that's what food. Anyway, but what should we do if, what, what do we make of the dressing up as witches, uh, demons and the devil? What, what do we do with that as Christians? Should Christians participate in that type of activity? Would participation in that type of activity be seen as acceptance? Or perhaps would participation be understood as, well, it's, I mean, that is the demonic, the spiritual things and so on. Well, it's all fairy tales anyway. You know, so what does it really matter? Who cares? Or uh, would participation be seen as a celebration of the demonic and evil, even if they're coming from a point of complete ignorance? That's worthwhile thinking about. You notice I haven't given you an answer because you're smart people, you can work it out. Um, I'm going to give you one more example uh, to think about over morning tea. So once a year, uh, this I don't think has happened here uh, locally, but once a year the local high school uh, has a sexual diversity day. Okay? And on this day, students are encouraged to wear rainbow colours to support sexual diversity and in particular homosexual and bisexual and any sexual sort of practice. Okay? Uh, wouldn't be uncommon in Corinth, by the way. Pretty common practice in Corinth if they had high schools back then. As parents, what do you do? What do, you, what do you do with that? As followers of Jesus, what do you do? We've got a few students here. We'll have more tonight. Let me ask you a few questions. Could it be that by wearing these rainbow colours, are you not demonstrating an acceptance of a lifestyle that rejects God's good order, God's good way? Are you not then participating in a rival spirituality which is in competition with Jesus, clearly? I guess there's two options you could go with. Um, maybe there's more options. I'm not quite sure. You can talk about it at morning tea. Uh, you don't go to school that day. Yes, you don't go. It's a little protest and you write a letter to the principal to explain why. That would be not a bad option. Or you go to school and you wear your school uniform as normal and you know you're going to cop it and you probably will. But, of course, God never promised following Jesus would be easy. And you pray for courage. You pray that you won't be ashamed of Jesus and you show love to all people. There's two options. Maybe you'll think of some more. Okay, let's get back to Corinth. Take a breather for a minute. Back to Corinth, verse 23 and following. But aren't we free? They say. Isn't food just food? Who really cares anyway? So let's pick it up from verse 23. And Paul says there's another aspect to think through with all this in, the, in, in terms of idolatry and keeping going as a Christian. And the salvation of others, the good of others, should always come before my freedom. So verse 23, everything is permissible, they say. It's why it's inverted commas. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive, Paul says. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. 
So eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. So you can eat anything, it's okay. The, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's quoting from Psalm 24. So you go ahead and eat. It's okay. Don't cut up, don't raise a question when it's not there. You can eat it. The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you, but don't raise questions of conscience. Don't raise the question if you don't need to. It's okay. If it's not an issue, it's not an issue. Don't worry. Eat it. Um, but, look at verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, not yours. The other man's. In other words, see, we forego our own rights for the sake of others. Now, Paul's been talking about this, this in chapter 8 and 9. In chapter 8, he, he talked about it in, in, again when it comes to food and, and the weaker brother. You can look that up later on. In chapter 9, he's been forgoing his rights as an apostle. Uh, and he's just following the example of Jesus. Jesus forgo his rights and died on the cross for our sin. So, in verse 32, he says, Don't cause anyone else to stumble. Verse 33, For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they may be saved. So that they may finish the race and receive the crown just like Paul. Now again, this is not, it's not a very common situation, is it, for us? We, 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 um, uh, we, we go to a dinner party at a friend's house and they say to us, well, this Devon has been... Um, <laughs> we haven't had a lot of Devon lately, have we? It's very out of fashion. I want to put Devon in. Um, this Devon has been offered in sacrifice to the gods. And you go, oh, I can't eat the devil, the Devon then. It's not good. Um, probably shouldn't eat it anyway. Uh, anyway, but it's not really a very common example for us. Let me give you another example. Uh, you, again, homework for morning tea as you talk. Try to think of another one. But here's one. Okay, a friend has given you, you're, you're a bit hard up for cash. Uh, a friend has given you $1,000. Very generous. A lot of money, $1,000. It seems very generous and you decide to accept it. Now, it'd be weird at this point, too, to say to him, mate, where's the money from? You know, where'd you get it from? Where'd you get the money? It's a lot of money. Where'd you get it? That'd be pretty uh, rude, wouldn't it? Don't do that, by the way. It's that, that would be rude. Um, but, but what if you find out, perhaps the friend even tells you, that they won at gambling? Or they did really well out of a deal at work that you know is dodgy. Or they sold something they stole or a friend of theirs stole to get the money. What if they told you that? What do you do? Well, God says you don't take the money. You don't participate. And if you do, like eating the Devon that had been sacrificed to the gods at the dinner party... You're, if you do take the money, you're sanctioning your friend's idolatry. You see, it's for his conscience, not yours. You're saying it's okay. You see, that's the other reason that's going on here. You don't take the money or eat the meat for the sake of your friend's salvation. For the sake of his conscience, you don't want to cause him to stumble. You don't want him to cause him to be disqualified. You want to, you want to see him at the end of the race as well. Participation diminishes Jesus, whereas the gospel demands undivided loyalty. I 
I've skipped a few, a few slides there. But the verse 31, it's up on the screen, it's in your Bibles as well. That's the life of following Jesus, undivided loyalty. That's the big picture of the Christian life. Let's close with this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's finish there. Lots and lots to think about. Maybe you do have a question or two. I'm going to pray and, um, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, see if anyone's got any questions or comments. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. Uh, Lord, Lord some, sometimes parts of your word are challenging and they, they um, challenge our, our thoughts, our behaviours, um, really, Lord, all your, all your word does. So, Lord, we, we, pray, we pray that we respond in obedience um, and wisdom and help us to do that. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the brothers and sisters that we have here that we, we share together. And um, uh, we thank you for the fellowship that we have in Jesus. Amen. All right, give you a moment or two. Uh, if you've got a question or a comment, we do this every week. Sometimes we look at each other and smile politely and no one says anything. That's great. But sometimes, even better, people share a question or, or have a comment. All right. Does anyone have a question or a comment? We had two last week. It was exciting. One of the reasons why I do this, just to explain it each time, one of the reasons why I do this is to make sure... It gives me a bit of feedback. That's always helpful. Comment cards are helpful for that too. But it also... Um, uh, it, it says that we're being transparent, that I'm being transparent, that you can quiz me on stuff. So that's why we do it. Last chance. Questions? Comments? David, thank you. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm with you. <laughs> that got him. question. Can I add something to it as well which might take it a bit further? Uh, Rod, we don't record the answers, do we? Yes. Can we not record the answers? 